Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Peter Kunze. My guest today is Daniel Herbert, professor in the Department of Film, Television, and Media at the University of Michigan, and the author of Maverick Movies, New Line Cinema and the Transformation of American Film. The book was published by the University of California Press in 2023. Hi, Dan. How are you today? I'm fantastic. How are you, Pete? I'm hanging in there. Uh... So thank you so much for coming and talking with us today about your exciting new book. Um, As we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about your training and your background? Sure thing. I got my PhD in critical studies from the University of Southern California. Uh, Completed that in 2008. Um, And while there, you know, it was the pretty classical film theory training. Um, But I also took courses on media economics in um, the Annenberg School. Um, And that was also kind of that moment of like the late aughts um, when media industry studies really started to coalesce. And I found myself more and more kind of uh, intellectually aligned with that kind of work and thinking. And so then um, my first monograph was about video rental stores not based on my dissertation. And that kind of put me into media industry studies. And so that's kind of been my main uh, area of focus for most of my career uh, with a kind of side focus on issues of like remaking and franchising and things like that. So adaptation. But I think uh, Maverick Movies definitely comes out of my long standing interest in studying media institutions of various kinds telling their histories, um, whether that's the video rental store or retailers like Circuit City, (laughs) um, and in this case, uh, a a movie studio. Excellent. And, um, you know, for those who do media industry history, as I think you would agree, this project falls, um, one of the lessons we often learn quite quickly is the archive shapes your project rather than you go into the archive with the project you want to write. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to New Line Cinema and how 
your uh, position at University of Michigan may have shaped the project you decided to write? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, those things are, yeah, excellent. So yeah, um, I'd been teaching at Michigan for a few years when um, the film and media librarian here, a uh, great guy named Phil Hallman, told me that we had a bunch of New Line Cinema prints uh, like film prints, and it had turned out, which I had not known, that Robert Shea, Bob Shea, who had founded New Line and ran it for 40 years, had graduated from the University of Michigan in the 60s, and he kind of kept this relationship with um, our department and, and with the university in general, and so when um, he'd been uh, uh, when he'd been removed from New Line in 2008, he uh, donated a lot of film prints to my department. And at that time, you know, this was right when streaming was really starting to take off. And within my department, and certainly with Phil Hallman, the librarian, we were all kind of debating, like, what was the role of film screenings in a world where students were increasingly watching things on torrents and on streaming. And so part, so I designed a class around teaching the New Line films. Um, just as a way of kind of reinvigorating film screenings in my department um, on celluloid. And I, you know, uh, to be honest, I didn't know much about New Line at all when I walked into that class. And so mostly it was like me looking at the catalog, which ran from, you know, Reefer Madness and Pink Flamingos to Dumb and Dumber to Lord of the Rings. And I, you know, I have to be honest, the first several times I taught that class, I was very confused myself about what we were up to because each week was a different moment, a very different genre, a very different sensibility. And that was kind of part of the fun of the class, but it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. In any case, so we had these prints. Shay had also donated a couple of boxes of papers. Um, and so as time went on, um, the, the move, the, 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 the company started to make more sense to me in its kind of eclecticism. I started to realize that eclecticism and um, variability was part of the new line story and part of the logic. Um, and I started to understand how that coordinated with a bigger story about kind of eclecticism in modern movie culture. And so, yeah, I had these Robert Shea papers, but really that wasn't much of the found. I mean, that was, there. it's a small collection. It's a, like, I don't know, four boxes or so. And so when I started to really think about turning the class and new line into a real book, you know, I, I started uh, looking at other places to find materials about the early days of new line, especially because from the sixties into the seventies, even into the early eighties, they were predominantly a, what's called a non-theatrical distribution company, meaning they didn't make movies really. They distributed movies to theaters, but the theaters that they mostly worked with were actually on college campuses. And of course, there's no central warehouse for non-theatrical distribution. Um, so I started going to universities, uh, various places around the country that had longstanding film societies where New Line had shown its films and advertised them and publicized them. And those film societies, some of them had kept everything that they'd ever been sent by a distribution company. So like, I mean, the main, I mean, one of the main sources was Cornell Cinema at, at, at Cornell. They just have this amazing storeroom of everything they've ever shown from the 60s onward. And so they had tons of stuff related to New Line's 
early days, catalogs, publicity materials. I also had friends who worked with them in the, in the 70s and they'd kept some stuff. Um, and so it, that was, a, you know, the I guess telling the story of the first like decade and a half of New Line was in part based on the Shea papers here, but also like me being kind of having fun driving around and going to closets and store, you know, storerooms of, of college campus film societies. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Um, go ahead. No, that that reminds me of your first book, Video Land, which it seemed to be, you know, you were very uh, itinerant, I guess, yeah. in, in kind of trying to capture this culture of um, home video stores and you know, a, a big aspect of your work has been distribution, right, and circulation of media content. Um, and, and I'm just fascinated to hear about methodologically other scholars in media history and in media industry studies in particular, how we do that kind of work. So, um, you know, you kind of have laid out for us a little bit of covering the, the early portion of New Line. Um, but of course, the history of New Line goes into, you know, the 2000s. So can you talk about the methodological challenges of historicizing this period because um you know I, I work on the 80s and the 90s and there's that kind of sense of that's not history you know you were a kid then um right. but then you remember that all those first generation film historians right um were essentially writing about movies 30 35 years earlier and, and then all of a sudden you have that horror of like oh my god the 80s and the 90s were 30 years ago um right. But, you know, how much of that has made itself into the archive is another question, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. And I think careful, studious readers of Maverick movies will see that there's a, a variance almost chapter to chapter in terms of my sources. Um, that by the time I get to chapters two, three, uh, and certainly when I'm talking about things like Lord of the Rings, I'm I'm really relying predominantly on publicly accessible print record, variety, New York Times, and, and that kind of thing. Um, I did have access in the Shea papers and also actually in the John Waters papers, which are which were held at Wesleyan, um, to like uh, internal memos and um, uh, stock sh shareholder reports and that kind of thing. That was helpful for kind of seeing how the internal discourse within New Line did or didn't reflect the publicized discourse. Um, as, you know, Caldwell and others tell us very clearly, you know, we all mediate ourselves in every part of the world and media workers mediate themselves in all sorts of ways. And so, um, you know, the internal discourse, the memos, there wasn't a, there was insight there, but there was, I wouldn't say there's any great ruptures between what New Line was saying internally and what it was saying publicly or what was getting said about it publicly. So thinking about that, where the public discourse and even the internal kind of, uh, it, you know, memo shareholder kind of discourse were lined up, it, it, it actually made me think, and this is again, a very Caldwellian kind of thinking just about how New Line as an institution took part in narrating its own history, right? And so that was kind of, I mean, it shouldn't be, have been such a light bulb moment, but it was a light bulb moment for me thinking, oh, part of my story about New Line has to be about how New Line tried to shape its own story over time. And I think, we, and you you know this very well, having written about Disney, uh, 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 you know, studying that in a kind of critical way can be fun. I think it's, uh, I don't know, it's more 
direct and honest to know that these institutions really want to create an identity for themselves. But I would say, and certainly in contrast to strong contrast to something like Disney, New Line's identity was always in flux, right? And 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 hard to pin down, um, partly because of the eclecticism. And, and so even as this company, you know, a company like Disney is very good at shaping people's opinions about it. New Line tried and tried and tried, and, and but it, it was always elusive and evasive um, in terms of pinning down what does what does New Line mean? What is a New Line film? Because it did change from decade to decade, from year to year, sometimes from week to week. And so, yeah, so I guess you're asking about method, um, but yeah, looking at publicly available stuff turned, made me think about kind of auto mythology on the part of media institutions. Um, and that was a fun way of looking at New Line. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, since, uh, in initially picking up your project, I thought like, oh, this is quite different from the kind of stuff I do since I work on Disney, which is kind of like very mainstream now. But of course, Disney and classical Hollywood era and then New Line in its early years are really, in many ways, minor players at best, arguably almost tangential, right? And then to see over the course of your study, the way that New Line mainstreams itself and yet kind of maintains this, um, you know, if we want to use indie in the sense that like Michael Newman has used it, right? At, at times, right? But, you know, it, it's fascinating to think about how you are managing the way that New Line is managing its own identity because there is this side of them that is very much doing, um popular mainstream genre fair and the other side of them which is you know um advocating for queer filmmakers at a time when they're still very much treated as outsiders and independent filmmakers and have no access to the mainstream um so i think maybe this is a great place for us to segue into two concepts which you introduce um at the outset to kind of help to frame your analysis um the first of those is opportunistic eclecticism. Can you tell us more about that one? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be very curious as the book gets read whether these ideas <laughs> withstand scrutiny because um, it was they're they're both my you know opportunistic eclecticism is my trying to in a two word phrase describe New Line's heterogeneity as a business strategy for its first several decades right it's like how do you explain a company that's releasing things like reefer madness pink flamingos john uh, you know uh john luke goddard's uh rolling stones movie one plus one and then within you know a matter of years is doing a re-release of texas chainsaw and then is making millions and millions of dollars with um nightmare on elm street right it's just such a kind of varied catalog and it's and so of opportunistic opportunistic eclecticism is my way of saying that that company was really scrappy and trying to find any way of getting uh let me figure out how to put this, like like just trying to work at the edges of things that mainstream Hollywood was not doing and trying to figure out how to build up an audience for these things that weren't going to be squarely mainstream hits, right? So this opportunism of seeing something that's out, you know, left of center, right, out of the mainstream, but then 
you know, so eclectic, but then opportunistically trying to figure out how to market that in a way that it expands beyond the insanely small niche audience one might presume such a film would have. And they did that over and over again, whether that is with Reefer Madness, right, or with Pink Flamingos. I mean, you watching Pink Flamingos, it makes no sense that they should say, oh, this is going to turn into millions of dollars. That makes zero business sense. But they did, right? They were the company that said, okay, this is, there's something in the air right now, mostly pot smoke, um, that, that tells me that there's a market for something with this kind of material. And so it, they, you know, they were opportunistic in taking strange chances um, and taking small oddball films and figuring out how to make the most out of them. And I would even say that counts for something like Nightmare on Elm Street, um, because I mean, the horror genre was obviously big, the slasher genre was already huge, um, but New Line comes into, you know, Freddy doesn't come out until 84. And that's like, a, you know, a number of years after um, uh, Jason and Michael Voorhees had already kind of, uh, you know, established the slasher genre. And so taking like something like Nightmare on Elm Street and trying to figure out, okay, how do we turn this into a bigger market share than we might think that the slasher film has in 1983 or 84. And part of that with Freddy was making it a kid's property, right? That turning it into, um, Halloween costumes and collectible sticker albums. And so franchising, like using the same kind of franchising logic that, uh, uh, you know, Lucasfilm was trying to do with Star Wars or Indiana Jones or any of those kinds of things and saying, okay, I know that Freddy is, a, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street is a hard R slasher film with a character who kills kids. That's what he does. How do we turn that into a property that expands beyond the people who pay for tickets at the movie theater? And they did. And so part of that is the story of home video that lots of kids like me, maybe you, uh, were watching this thing before we were 17. Um, and Freddie became a kind of icon for a youth audience uh, well beyond the theatrical audience, right? So that, I guess, yeah, to loop back to the question that, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, even I would say that that's also an exa example of opportunistic eclecticism because it's like, okay, how do we take a horror film and opportunistically franchise this thing well beyond where other companies might have envisioned a limited marketability? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I have to admit I was a complete coward as a child and I continue to be a coward today, but I was absolutely the prime audience for Dumb and Dumber and Austin Powers, which is a good segue into your other concept, uh, incorporative heterogeneity. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So again, another kind of multi-syllabic multi phrase trying to describe weirdness as business strategy. Um, so I guess incorporative heterogeneity is my way of kind of, I think, doing two things. One, it's it's invoking the word corporation. Uh, and so it's a way of kind of uh, signaling that New Line itself becomes enmeshed in a bigger, more mainstream part of the media business. Meaning that in 1986, they go public and become a publicly traded company with shares on the New York Stock Exchange. Then in 1993-4, they get bought by Ted Turner, which is enormous, by then enormous cable empire. 
And then when Turner merges with Time Warner in 96, suddenly, you know, New Line is in 1996, part of the Time Warner corporate empire, which at the time was the biggest media conglomerate on the planet, right? So we go from, in a span of like, again, less than 10 years, 86 to 96, um, a company doing Nightmare on Elm Street, going publicly traded for the first time to becoming a st- one movie studio within a giant global media conglomerate. So that's it, kind of new line itself became incorporated, right? The other part of that is that they still did, by comparison with other movie studios, relatively oddball and more eclectic uh, films in in more, in a wider range of genres. So they, you know, they didn't really release many comedies uh, in the seventies or eighties, unless you count the films of John Waters, which they are comedies, but they're not playing in commercial theaters around the country the way Dumb and Dumber did, right? So things like The Mask, Dumb and Dumber. Uh, a few years later with Austin Powers, New Line gets into the comedy business and that's big, big business for them. And it is a more mainstream genre, but we should recall that it's not like New Line gave up doing more esoteric material. Cause as you say, like they did um, a bunch of films related to the new queer cinema in the 1990s um, through their specialty division, Fine Line. They released uh a huge, a really important um, cycle of films uh, related to the new black cinema of the 1990s. Um, And a lot of studios weren't doing that. Um, And so like House Party and Friday and Set It Off. Um, So a a, a range of uh, films featuring black casts almost entirely produced and directed by black uh, artists. so again, as, as New Line became more mainstream and did things like, yeah, Dumb and Dumber or Austin Powers, uh, eventually things like Rush Hour, um, they were still a comparatively oddball company within Hollywood. So it's this kind of sense of incorporating heterogeneity. And I also kind of use that phrase to kind of signal that as New Line's doing that from a more kind of financially secure and industrially powerful position in the 90s that's also the logic of cable at that same time it's like you think about cable channels and narrow casting and it's a way of like saying okay these media empires are still making global uh, films for global audiences main mainstream big blockbusters but they're also investing heavily in cable channels which are you know targeting very narrow demographic populations right so uh, whether that's news channels with CNN and Turner's, you know, CNN or MTV with youth audiences, right? The whole media business, as it shifts toward the the the, the importance of cable to these media conglomerates, is one of yes. On the one hand, we're going to do these big mainstream things for big audiences. On the other hand, we're going to have all these cable channels and specialty film divisions that are really looking at very specialized kinds of audiences with particular kind of social identities and backgrounds. Thank you for that. And it, it seems these terms are also really helpful for us appreciating um, New Line in relationship to arguably the behemoth at the period, right? Miramax. Um, mm-hmm. And Elisa Perrin's Indie Inc. is obviously one of your kind of key interlocutors in this book. Um, could you explain for us uh, along those lines, you know, 
where New Line is both paralleling what Miramax is doing and diverging and and um and and how it's important to appreciate that that New Line is not just doing what Miramax is doing. It's it actually has its own kind of um strategies for navigating the this interesting kind of conglomerate era um incorporation of the independent division into these major media conglomerates. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, you know, as I try to answer this, I could say that even after having finished this book, my thinking about the relationship between Miramax and New Line is probably more confused than ever. So let me just do my best here. Um, I because I love Alyssa's book and I and I think a lot about Miramax, but I is I could still be getting them wrong in my own mind. But I think part of the deal with Miramax is that they really were a specialty division. I mean, they're a specialty company doing foreign art house fair, American independent, you know, uh, uh, artsy films. And, and that's really where I think Miramax stayed, except with the creation of Dimension, right? So I think in this bizarre, you know, funhouse mirror way, Miramax makes dimension to handle lowbrow genre pictures, action films, horror films. That was the bread and butter by the 90s of New Line, right? Parallel with that, or I mean, we shouldn't say action films, but like, you know, genre films with little to no artistic pretension. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, and, and and I think that's it. I think Miramax had a, oh, you know, had a, had sought an air of artistic pretension that New Line didn't care about the same way, right? On this, by the same token, New Line in 1990-91 makes fine line features specifically to handle films like uh, uh, My Own Private Idaho, The Player, right? So these American or at least English language artsy, art house kind of films. And so it's interesting to see like Miramax stays defined by that specialty kind of thing and creates dimension to handle genre pictures. Whereas I think New Line dives headfirst into the genre stuff with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 1990 or The Mask in 94. Uh, and, then, and then creates Fine Line to kind of handle their classy upscale kind of uh, uh, stuff, right? So both companies being you know, independent distributors for a long time, both of them getting snared by big conglomerates in 1993 slash 94. Both of them spending a lot more money as a result of that. Um, And both of them, I think, trying to like, you know, figure out this, some kind of ground where they've got some differentiation in the market from mainstream Hollywood studios, but also trying to do films with bigger budgets aimed for bigger audiences. Um, what, so New Line, I guess I would say that it, it, to get back to it, I think New Line, whether it's through its success in the 80s with Nightmare on Elm Street or it's kind of branching out into kind of more popular fare with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, New Line really started to conceive of itself more and more as being a more mainstream company, even if it did have one foot out the door of Hollywood. Um, and whereas Miramax, I think, tried to kind of stay attached to prestige and, um, yeah, and artistic sophistication, whereas New Line really kind of cordoned that off and, yeah, let Fine Line handle it. 
I hope that answers it. I hope that's true. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, that's kind of in, in reading your book and, and thinking about Miramax's history, since obviously it was so important to Disney's history, I really think how they handled um, Scream at Miramax through Dimension if I'm correct, um, it kind of it points to almost, uh, if I remember undergraduate rhetoric correctly, it's almost like a chiasmus, right? Where it's like New yeah. Line starts in popular, goes prestige. Miramax really cuts its teeth in prestige and goes popular. Yeah. But, you know, interesting to think about how the horror genre kind of functions in that, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, and both of them, of course, being um, smaller divisions within much larger media conglomerates and trying to navigate that um both the, the the brand of the bigger conglomerate and the oversight right and um i think shay's tensions um with that is kind of an interesting way of thinking about um how do we appreciate these figures in a larger network without necessarily elevating them as these kind of great man visionary types oh, yeah, right yeah, yeah. no totally i mean um, i think yeah go ahead no, no, no. I mean, I think that th that's really kind of the challenge that any of us who do media industry history are kind of working through, right? You know, Michelle Helms and and Tom Schatz both talk about that in um, Holton Perrin's Media Industries um, anthology, right? You know, this the the, the figure is important, right? Um, and they're often very powerful, um, but they're also operating within this larger kind of um, uh, culture and ecology, right? And so it, it's fascinating to see with Shay how he's navigating it and these other kind of personalities that come in um, and, and how they're in many ways being bumped and shaped and pushed in different directions as the industry is going through this huge period of transformation, right? I mean, um, the study kind of ambitiously sets up this idea of like, you know, the history of New Line is kind of the history of contemporary Hollywood and it and it plays out beautifully, right? As we kind of watch it follow these, these shifts from... Um, you know, uh, say, auteurist distribution in the 70s with someone like John Waters into the rise of franchises or, or the kind of the surge of franchises in the 80s and then the 90s, the way that independent cinema plays into it. But uh, I fear we've gotten to a moment where I'm starting to to explain your book to you. But I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. you know, it, it, but it's, it, it's interesting to see um, in, in reading this, right, um, how these companies um, – manage legitimacy and the tension between art and commerce in, yeah. during this period yeah that that tension between creativity and commerce actually was the was one of the major frames for my teaching the class for the first mm. time because that was the only thing that <laughs> those were the only terms that made sense it's like you know the phrase you know culture industry creative industries and i was like okay so let's think about that like new line embodies that tension pretty well it's like what's creative here you know what's creative about you know the mask i mean i don't mean to denigrate any of their films but it's like this seems like a pretty mainstream or dumb and dumber right it's like openly flouting intellectualism and you know artistic prestige you know and and yet i think there's there was genius creativity in the marketing of dumb and dumber genius um and so it was part of my kind of journey too in understanding new line of like seeing how to conceptualize the creativity of commerce to seeing that the films they released aren't always things that i liked the films that they released aren't always what you'd call good um but they were always oh well 
they were consistently and and uh, fortuitously successful in being creative in how they got those films to market. Um, and so that's part of like my great admiration for the company is that even when I don't love the movie, I can often really love what they did with the movies in terms of selling them and advertising them and and convincing people that they were worth paying money to see. I think, you know, you talked about Shay. I want to say two things about that. I think, um, I do think as a, as a person, uh, he had a strong hand. I, I did interview him extensively for the book. I mean, I, I note this in a footnote. And in the end, you know, I don't really quote him or cite any of that interview material because so much of what he said was either irrelevant to the kind of history I was writing. I mean, it was all fascinating. It was all a lot of fun. Um, or, or it just re- reiterated or, or could be found in the public record, right? So, and that was also part of my record, like my thing about New Line's narrating of itself as part of the story. Is that, so like sitting with Shay for like multiple days, listening to, listening to his narration of the story, it was like, oh, he's been narrating this for a long time. I mean, these are, these are stories or anecdotes or even turns of phrase that I've seen crop up in interviews from 1986 or 1994. So, so that's part of it is that Shay is important to the institution, but I also realized the story wasn't Shay, the story was New Line. Um, Two, I think there is a big personality difference or like between, let's just not say between uh, uh, Weinstein and Shea, but rather personality difference between Miramax and New Line in terms of the the um, economic uh, rigor. Um, I think Miramax at some point, maybe early on, became really, really swept up in this uh, uh, trying to achieve awards, cultural prestige and legitimacy. And New Line for all that they might've wanted that, um, really just wanted to make sure that they could, you know, be, you know, phys- financially solvent, right? So they would make lots of decisions that maybe like gave up awards or didn't kind of spend a bunch of money looking for Oscars because they wanted, in the end of the day, it was more important to make money. Um, not that Miramax didn't want to make money, but I think that they got in like kind of obsessed with prestige in a way that New Line didn't. Um, and so I think the fiscal tightness of New Line is one of its defining characteristics. And your point about Shea kind of um, echoes things I found in my own research, right? Where it's people will say to me like, oh, did you talk to Michael Eisner? Did you talk to Jeffrey Katzenberg? And it's like, I don't think I want to, right? Like they've had their say. I know what they're going to say. Um, and to go back to Caldwell, right, you know, in the opening of production culture, very often when we talk to those people at the top, we're getting spin. We're getting um, yeah, I perhaps say- not the most trustworthy narrative, but, but I know Caldwell himself has kind of tempered that claim uh, yeah. in his later work. And yeah. I, think, I, I guess, and I even, like in my acknowledgement of my interviews with Shay in the book, I, I, I even say, like, I, I, and I, I'll say it again here, I genuinely don't believe that Shay was trying to spin me. I think mm-hmm. he's a really generous, really smart guy Mm-hmm. Who had who has a real deep emotional connection to his professional career, and so h- him agreeing to be, talk to me, I think he, he, I know he was trying to just give me the inside scoop. The the trick is, and this is where Caldwell is helpful, is just to say, okay, the inside scoop has already been so often made public, right? And so these kind of public disclosures, I don't. In the case of Shay, I really take our conversations in very good faith but i do recognize that it's still a mediation right he's still telling a story and 
he's been telling the story for a long time. So I don't think he was telling me things that were false or like trying to create the necessarily the best light. Cause I know he told me stories about terrible things. Um, but, but I do think like it's, it's still part of a kind of myth making uh, that, that we, that he does, he's done and, and has been done publicly. Um, yeah. So you cover quite a lot in this book. I mean, one of the things that struck me as I was reading it was that was New Line, that was New Line, that was New Line. Um, and so when I was putting together the questions I wanted to ask you today, I was thinking, how do I how do I do this, right? Um, and I decided a strategy to maybe think through this would be rather than going chapter by chapter, to just select seven films from New Line's run that seem to be representative of shifts in not only the company's tactics, but the industry at large. Um, and I think a great place for us to start in that analysis of, of New Line's emergence is John Waters' Pink Flamingos. So for, for those who are unfamiliar with the transgressive brilliance of John Waters, um, can you talk about that film and how it kind of fits in New Line's early history? Yeah, so New Line, for, you know, founded in 1967, had been distributing kind of oddball, B-grade foreign language art films to college campuses. Uh, Waters had already been making short films in Baltimore and had sent some to New Line for possible distribution. Uh, and New Line had said no to all of them. They were just too uh, rough looking, let's say. Um, and then... He, they, he sends Pink Flamingos upon its completion uh, and Shay watches it and is like, what is this? What is this? What is this? And then gets to some scene where something especially crazy happens and says, okay, we can, we've got, <laughs> we can sell this. Um, and yeah, the film itself is full of like, I mean, it's about people who are trying to be the most, you know, disgusting, filthy people on the planet and out disgusting each other. Um, so it really is just a parade of people doing truly <laughs> uh, outrageous stuff. Like I, I feel like every audience for there has it like, there's a moment, there's some moment, sometime where you're like, okay, it's too much. It's too much. Um, um, for me, it's the it's the chickens. There's the scene with the chickens, and I'm like, okay, this film is fine. It's crossed the line, um, and it, yeah. Uh, so, but we think about this is like 72, 73. This is when the Elgin Theater is making a lot of money uh, showing El Topo at midnight screenings to inebriated audiences, um, and. New Line gets it in at the Elgin and it turns into a the next midnight movie kind of phenomenon. Um, so I think New Line, it's so outside the mainstream, so far out the mainstream, but New Line did figure out, okay, here's this one zone, the midnight movie scene in New York City um, that is so far out the mainstream, maybe there's something, we, maybe that's the place for it, right? Um, and of course, New Line was based in New York. So, so they knew all the kind of happenings among the youth culture in the cinephile scene there, or the counter counterculture scene or whatever it was. Um, and so they get it in at the Elgin and it blows up and then it starts, you know, midnight movies as a phenomenon for that kind of fair really spread across the country. And they're showing it at, at you know, Midnight movies in San Francisco and Detroit, Chicago, and they're playing it on college campuses. Um, John Waters is 
going showing up at college campuses with Divine and the crew and doing these kind of public talk events with the screening. Um, and it kind of spreads. It makes it literally makes millions of dollars uh, over the course of several years in the 70s. Yeah, I have to admit, as someone who works on um, animated cartoons for kids, I was envious that you got to use the word coprophagia in, <laughs> <laughs> in film history. I was like, maybe that'll be a challenge for my next project is how, how do I talk to my colleagues about um that um but a a very different film but maybe not maybe maybe there's more continuities than i'm acknowledging but um a nightmare on elm street in 1984 um how does that kind of represent kind of a shift in new lines approach that's great i mean i think really what it is is the shift in youth culture sensibilities from say 72 to 84 that You've got in the early 70s, a kind of youth culture, a youth film culture that was looking for things outside the mainstream, challenging social norms to the degree that something like Pink Flamingos could be commercially viable, right? When you think about youth culture in the 80s, that is just a different population that is a different sensibility and even if they're looking for things that challenge social norms or aren't the kinds of movies that their parents are going to watch and they're kind of rebellious rebellion looks different in 84 than it does in 72 and so new line i think one of the through lines across the book is just a, a durable interest in youth audiences and an ability to recalibrate to capture youth audiences changing tastes and sensibilities or even you know and in some ways shaping that right so we know very well that like the midnight movie scene and the kind of uh, is also co- became coterminous with horror movies and exploitation right exploitation films includes horror movies and so new line moving into the horror genre um in the late 70s really is part of their being you know uh, involved in the midnight movie scene. So they did that re-release of, of Texas Chainsaw. Um, they did a re-release of Night of the Living Dead. Um, so these films that kind of either went into the public domain or that New Line, you know, snatched the copyright to. Um, and New Line even did like Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, right? Um, so they grabbed hold of this thing and it wasn't, you know, and that was a splatter film. So they kind of, dab- they knew that there was a market for horror. And uh, uh, and then, I mean, and then, yeah, and then produced um, uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street with Wes Craven directing um on a budget of around two and a half million dollars. And then it just, I mean, then, then it really just took off from there. So I think it's like, yeah, the change in sensibility I would locate as being one in, in um, New Line's trying to think about what do, what do youth audiences want in the 80s versus what do they want in the 70s? And seeing that horror slasher films was a way of getting teenagers. Um, and then realizing that it's not just teenagers, it can be 10 year old younger siblings wearing Halloween costumes and whatever else. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. 
Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Um, uh, Tom Schatz, in a, in a fairly recent essay, talks about 1989 as this kind of interesting prism for Hollywood in transition because of uh, Batman's release by Warner Brothers um, and Tim Burton's role in that, of course, and as well as the release of uh, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape, uh, and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Um, and then in 1990 and 1991, I'm going to ask you to talk about these films together, although they don't welcome that, but I think they are kind of representative of the shift that, that Tom's talking about. Um, 1990, House Party. 1991, yeah. My Own Private Idaho. Yeah. Right? Both New Line films. Um, and, and I think you would agree, kind of evocative of them kind of in conversation with the industry and where it's at, right? Totally. I mean, I think, okay, so, but I should cl clarify that My Own Private Idaho is a, is a fine line picture. So they sure. definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, so they definitely... New Line institutionally saw the difference between those things, right? With House Party, okay, there's a lot going on there. But one of the things is that New Line had been increasingly interested in connecting with hip hop. Um, it, that they tried, you know, they had the Fat Boys. If you remember the Fat Boys, they did. Um, oh yes. Uh, the uh, soundtrack uh, track for one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. There was a music video with the Fat Boys featuring Freddy Krueger. So New Line was kind of seeing the rise of hip hop and trying to figure out how to capitalize on that from, uh, you know, from, let's say, 86, 87. Um, part of that is the same kind of savvy of, of New Line seeing, okay, the presumed audience for hip hop is black, but we we know or we can guess that it's bigger than that, and that we can really sell, you know, a uh, 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 genre associated with African Americans to either a big African American audience or to a, a big audience that that expands beyond the presumed audience, right? And I think House Party it, it perfectly embodies that. It's like, okay, we can take these. Uh, these hip hop figures, uh, kid and play, put them in what's otherwise a really um, lighthearted, you know, unpretentious kind of teeny bop kind of movie, just about kids trying to throw a party when their parents are away, um, and and we can kind of make it fun and light and and kind of grab a youth sensibility that's attached to hip hop, but. Um, you know, might have an audience that that is quite quite big, and it turned out to be that big. As the book details, right, there was discourse around that film and within New Line around what was called crossover, right? So this idea that somehow Black-related genres in music or movies were limited in their commercial appeal and that crossover was this kind of code word for at uh, attaining white audiences for Black genres um, and that that was the kind of commercial goal and the industrial hurdle that had to be overcome and house party did really good business um and um and so set new line on a trajectory of appealing to both african-american audiences and more with um films associated with hip-hop figures and i think 
one of the things that, and, and like, so they did like Menace to Society. So that was, you know, often in discourse paired with Boys in the Hood. So both these films featuring black men in uh, uh, urban, you know, violent situations, right? Um, but a lot more of the kind of African-American films that New Line did were much more lighthearted and not so serious. Um, and, and that's kind of in part what sets them apart. So there's a, I guess the, to get to your question, it's like it's a popular genre, the comedy, but it's also separate from like maybe the comedies that Warner Brothers was doing, certainly different than the comedies that like Paramount was doing, right? So not a lot of companies were handling African-American films. So it's a popular genre, but still has this kind of difference within the market. And then something like I own Private Idaho. Yeah, it's like these two characters that are uh, male sex workers. Um, but, and then so you, perhaps limited. And it's also Gus Van Sant, who uh, had already done Drugstore Cowboy, um, was kind of on the rise as an indie auteur. His aesthetic is certainly in those days was quiet and contemplative, very interested in social outsiders, whether that was the sex workers of my own private Idaho or the drug addicts of, of, of drugstore cowboy. Um, and so it seems pretty narrow, right? It's like, who's interested in a quiet kind of meditative film about sex workers in uh, the Pacific Northwest? Well, when you cast Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix, right? Suddenly the potential market really opens up um, and like, I can just speak anecdotally, like I saw that movie as a cinephile because my girlfriend at the time wanted to watch the new Keanu Reeves movie. Right. And so it's like, I saw it, my mind was blown. I, I love, I loved indie films. I loved indie films, but part of the appeal is the kind of teen, teen magazine figures appearing in it. So I guess it's like, you know, in some ways, actually, those films are very comparable because they both have these kind of things that set them apart in the marketplace, maybe even make them difficult to market. Like, how do you sell a black film to white audiences? That's like, that's what all the newspapers were talking about at the time. And or like, how do you sell a film about, uh, you know, queer uh, 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 male sex workers to, you know, a, a mainstream American cinephile audience? I don't know. But in both cases, right? It's like, well, in the case of this, it's like, it's just a lighthearted teen comedy. So, you know, you can watch that. And in this case, it's like, well, it's an indie auteur with teenage stars that everybody recognizes. So it's like both of them have these aspects that are really different in the market, but also have points of real accessibility. And it strikes me, too, that House Party becomes a franchise, as does another project of theirs, Friday, right? So we often think of franchises, perhaps during this period, as being you know, driven by um, intellectual property coming out of comic books or, um, you know, horror, obviously, with Nightmare on Elm Street. But, you know, we often don't think of comedy as franchises outside of like, oh, you know, here's another Robin Williams film or another Jim Carrey film. But House Party obviously does get that treatment, right? Um, totally. And, and Friday, too, as you say. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and, it, and I'm still thinking, I mean, I, there's probably a way of turning this into a separate article about the franchising logic and and blackness and african americans within franchising logics like like how do those and that, i mean i know it's in the book but I, I i think i could think more about that or say something about that because it is important and interesting that house party gets franchised and is successful and especially like even the second film in the run-up to the release of the second film like the hudlin brothers the producer and the director were talked about in the same breath as spike lee 
right? I mean, that those films were regarded at the time as being as important for Black representation in American movies as she's got to have it, right? And that, so like that was also the kind of novelty for me is going back to a time that I lived through, but as a, with a kind of historical eye thing, like, wow, House Party was a really big deal at the time. And isn't it interesting that it isn't, you know, it's not taught in classes, you know, it's like, if you have to teach like uh, black representation of the 80s, 90s, you, what it, it's like, you always go uh, to Spike Lee. And so it's like, my, my inclination now is to do house party. <laughs> um, anyway, so I'm, I'm now, now I'm officially rambling, but go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I must admit I have an ulterior motive here, which is that um, a few years ago, I wrote on Bebe's Kids because Paramount made Bebe's Kids because it was responding to Disney, but it didn't want to do children's stuff. It wanted to do something older. And Reginald Hudlin had his hands in that. I think he's an incredibly fascinating figure. And then, of course, uh, folks who love Boondocks know that Reginald Hudlin also is brutally satirized by that show um but seeing how he is kind of playing in this this period um i think is really important for the history of hip-hop cinema um because we often associate it with those um what craig watkins calls the urban ghetto film cycle right these kinds of melodramas of you know the adversity faced by young black men in particular living in the inner city um but at the same time it's hard to ignore the the success of the house party of friday of don't be a menace to south central while drinking your juice in the hood which actually goes back and makes fun of all those films right um and it really kind of complicates our perceptions of you know what was mainstream black cinema during this period um so I'm I'm I was I welcomed the ramble. I I love yeah. House Party and and I'm I'm glad to hear it's getting more critical love. Um, I say one more thing because I I think it just occurred to me that also thinking about franchising and those uh, new lines kind of uh, African American hip hop films, the soundtrack like we have to remember how crucial soundtracks sales were to the movie business in general at, at, at that time. And that with hip hop, especially hip hop soundtracks could make more revenue than the films that they were attached to. Mm. Um, and so you think about franchising, it's not just about spinning house party into additional films or Friday into additional films and a cartoon. It's that new line from the start with all of those was thinking in a multimedia transmedia kind of way of saying mm-hmm. we're selling movies but we're also coordinating that with with record sales mm-hmm. yeah anecdotally uh, my little brother who was born in 1987 the first album he ever owned was the soundtrack to dangerous minds wow. um, which we certainly did not see Right. Yeah, but, right. Uh, you know, Gangsta's Paradise was unavoidable in the pop music scene of the 90s. So it, it speaks very much to that kind of um, synergistic sensibility, that kind of high concept thinking coming out of people like David Geffen in the, the 80s. Right. That hip hop could kind of lead to these connections in really interesting ways. Oh. Um so uh, while we are continuing the walk through my youth, <laughs> I was hoping we could talk a bit about uh, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Um, and, and, and where is where is New Line at in the late 90s? Great. So they'd already had big, big smash hits with The Mask and Dumb and Dumber. Um, in both of those cases, they'd really New Line had dreamed about franchising those and turning out sequels really rapidly. In both cases, that didn't pan out um, so quickly. Um, But they did, I think Austin Powers follows in a line of them doing uh, comedies that are intentionally kind of gross out or lowbrow body humor kind of stuff with um, 
uh, performers with male buffoon characters played by male performers taken from uh, you know, comedy shows, skit shows. So Jim Carrey coming from In Living Color. Um, they did Adam Sandler's The Wedding Singer. Um, and I mean, that was not, not I mean, new, lots of SNL performers were doing movies, but um, New Line was kind of, you know, doing those kinds of things with kind of a more crude form of masculine male buffoon humor. And so Austin Powers, kind of falls in line with that. I'm trying to remember with Austin Powers. I think Austin Powers is 97. So, uh, or maybe 98 at the latest. So certainly like within this short period of time um, that they're still trying to kind of, they're, they're just concertedly trying to do these kind of crude um, comedies. Um, and, you know, the thing about uh, Austin Powers is that, it, you know, 97, 98, is that there was a lot of 90s, I'm sorry, a lot of 1960s nostalgia happening. I think that was connected to like indie, you know, alternative music culture was like the same people who were listening to Nirvana were listening to Led Zeppelin. Um, and so there is this kind of appetite for a parody of all these kind of, um, of the 60s nostalgia that was circulating. And that's Austin Powers to a T, right? It's kind of mocking the flower power sexual revolution stuff. In addition to kind of, uh, mocking the kind of notion of swinging London and kind of cliches about Britishness, um, uh, bad teeth and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so a lot of that is like Mike Myers, you know, character building, but it's also New Line's kind of uh, penchant for doing films about crude men doing socially inappropriate things. I think, you know, you asked about continuities. I think, you know, if you look at John Waters films in the 70s, you can compare them not wrongly, I think, to things like Dumb and Dumber and Austin Powers. It's this, those are films that are much more sanitized, right? You don't have people eating dog crap, but you do have the same impulse of like watching people do socially outrageous things, but in such in the in the case of the 90s films, in such a way that they can be played in multiplexes and megaplexes. Um, and so in fact, in some ways, Austin Powers is like this, as a parody, is this kind of refutation of New Line's own history of dealing with films, of, re of releasing films that were politically charged and, you know, kind of sold and marketed the values of flower power and sexual revolution and all that stuff with a, you know, with a straight face. And so Austin Powers, you know, 30 years after New Line's founding is like saying this kind of repudiation of all this stuff that New Line had been doing in the 1960s. Um, but it, it also made millions and millions of dollars and kicked off three more films, was part of New Line's ability to expand to increasing international markets and play its films internationally. Um, and so, yeah, it's again, one of those kinds of moments where it's like, yeah, it's a kind of lowbrow crude comedy, but this company was really savvy in kind of expanding it beyond the presumed teenage boy audience. So you mentioned gross out and body, and I believe outrageous, which yeah. I think invites us to think about uh, a film that deeply traumatized me as a young man watching HBO, uh, which is David Cronenberg's Crash. Um, yeah. and this is a brief aside, I think, in your larger analysis of this period, but I think it's such a fascinating case study. Can we, can we talk about how Crash kind of, um, was handled by New Line? 
Yeah, so it was a fine line picture. Um, and I guess the thing, yeah, for those of us who lived through it, it was like the kind of scandal of the, of the moment, the cinematic scandal to, you know, in the post kind of kids, post gummo kind of world. Uh, Crash was like the most, you know, like this new kind of, uh, you know, like, yeah, all the press was like, oh, sex and car crashes, how perverse. And like, this movie's full of just deeply perverted sexual behaviors and like, how gross and who, who could possibly watch it? How do you sell this? Who's going to, you know, we, how could it get a rating? Ted Turner was on, on the record of saying he hated it, right? So this the guy who owns the corporation is saying it's a horrible movie. Um, it was, you know, banned in the UK, like, like government officials all over England were like decrying it. And uh, yeah, so it gained, I mean, part of it is that it had gained this crazily heated reputation from the time it premiered at Cannes, uh, the Cannes Film Festival, and it, you know, got kind of this bizarre award from the, uh, you know, which was a non-award uh, from the jury. And then it played, you know, in France and did well, but it did, it got banned in England. And so it had, it, it, in its international circulation in festivals and elsewhere before it came to North America, it had its reputation, its negative, its notoriety had already preceded it. And so fine line, you know, which, you know, when compared to something like Miramax was not often in the business of selling scandal, but in the case of Crash definitely had a, a, a case of like, okay, now we've got a film that there's no way of selling this film that because it's already scandalous. We we've got this film and it's already kind of garnered all this scandal, including from the the guy who owns this conglomerate. Um and so uh uh yeah and so I, I think that it, you know when you look at the posters and they're kind of quirky because it's just like a picture of like spader and i'm forgetting the female actress's name and it just says sex and holly car- hunter holly hunter right of course and it's just like it says sex and car crashes and it's like that's it's like such a bizarre like it's that could be high concept it's like oh right like it's just a few words it tells you everything you need to know and you're like actually that tells me nothing i need to know about this movie uh uh and so um they the, the, by the time, I guess, yeah, just to reiterate, by the time Fine Line actually got it to North America, it was already, its reputation was way ahead of it. And Fine Line just kind of said, okay, here, here we go. And it didn't do especially well in the United States. It actually did better in Canada, in part because Cronenberg uh, uh, is is Canadian. Yeah, I think it's a, it's just a fascinating case study in the auteur and yeah. independent sensibilities. And and I, I believe one of the points you make is that uh, Weinstein at that point w- over at Miramax would have been more open to kind of like, we've got to cut this to get this out with an R and, and fine line saying, no, it goes as it is. Right. right. And, right. Um, so uh, the last film I want to talk about um, uh, your penultimate chapter is a really rich study of Lord of the Rings, but I'm a contrarian. So I don't want to talk about Lord of the Rings. I think people should read it and enjoy its richness without having a, a quick loss. I want to talk about the golden compass because yeah. Um, in some ways, it's influenced by Lord of the Rings, and in some ways, it kind of spells the end of uh, of, of New Line. So, um, can you tell us a bit about the Golden Compass and its kind of um, and how it kind of serves as a prism in this kind of final chapter of uh, of New Line? Great. Yeah. So the the chapter, the last chapter of the the book, is almost largely about Lord of the Rings because it was such a kind of monumental achievement for the company um, in terms of marketing, 
uh, distribution, financing. I mean, the financing of the Lord of the Rings films is kind of astounding. Um, and the Golden Compass as a case is like, it's it's all true. I'm not just making it up, but it is a kind of example of like how New Line tried to replicate so many aspects of the success of Lord of the Rings and failed on every count. Um, so, you know, Lord of the Rings in part the success of it was because it was financed uh, in part in collaboration with the New Zealand government. So with New Zealand tax dollars, similarly, you know, Golden Compass was uh, uh, shot in England to make use of, uh, you know, tax breaks in the UK. Um, I mean, let's just get back to basics. It's like they New Line got the property to Golden Compass in 2002. So after they'd already been making billions with Lord of the Rings, looking to replicate that success and saying, okay, where else is that? And say, well, if fantasy is big, let's get another fantasy book. And it's like, oh, and they're looking like next door at Warner Brothers and saying, okay, Harry Potter is making lots of money. So not just fantasy, but like fantasy around kids. So let's do that, right? So there's a lot of kind of, mentality of like oh repeating success both our success with with uh lord of the rings but also like all this other kind of youth fantasy wizardry kind of stuff and that's the and so the the dark materials novels released in the 1990s they get that property um the other kind of well okay so then i should say like that the production is troubled from the start though in a way that uh lord of the rings I mean, it wasn't smooth with Lord of the Rings, but it was much more kind of tortuous with uh, Golden Compass, which I think has a lot to say about, you know, actually the role of Peter Jackson's, uh, Peter Jackson's role in the success of Lord of the Rings, that as a, a director, he did a lot. And like the writer of Golden Compass got fired, got rehired. Uh, the director of Golden Compass got fired, replaced, and then rehired. And so it was like a four or five year development of this project that was really labored um in a way that like again like lord of the rings was a kind of crazily huge production but it it got pulled off right um the other thing like with golden compass is that new line you know tried to to a smaller extent but did try to replicate the kind of global um marketing that they had had with with lord of the rings but golden compass um had critics already because the novels have a kind of anti-religious sentiment and so new line in typical new line fashion uh, was not scared to take on somewhat controversial material on the other hand it presented a marketing challenge because they had to overcome all these like christian right kind of people saying it's satanist it's atheist it's terrible and so new line's like okay well does that mean we downplay the anti-religion thing in the story or not so it's like a lot of confusion, let's say, in, in both the production, the screenwriting, and in the marketing. Um, and then, yeah, and then it, it gets released. And ultimately, you know, Golden Compass makes hundreds of millions of dollars, but the majority of that money is made overseas. Uh, similarly, you know, Lord of the Rings made a lot of money, and a lot of that was overseas. However, because of the way the deal worked with the Golden Compass, similar to Lord of the Rings, but to New Line's detriment, uh, that overseas revenue was largely going to foreign distribution partners. So in order to launch a kind of global release like Lord of the Rings or like Golden Compass, New Line worked with these kind of international distribution companies to, 
to kind of offset risk, right? Because they're always financially, you know, tight. Um, but in the case of Golden Compass, because it didn't make much in North America, they didn't, the, the money that the movie did make did not go to New Line. So even if it was seen as like not a total failure, it still was a financial failure for New Line. So thinking about that, like their financing plan was similar to Lord of the Rings, but that ultimately backfired because of the distribution partnership, which had totally worked out with Lord of the Rings. The marketing was totally tricky because, uh, uh, you know, it just didn't have the kind of, um, uh, like the, the, I mean, Lord of the Rings had a rabid fan base and, and, and like the high anticipation, whereas, yeah, uh, Golden Compass had kind of critics that they had to kind of push against. And then, um, well, that might be it that I'm, that I'm thinking of. But anyway, so it was like clearly, clearly uh, New Line trying to replicate the success of its own Lord of the Rings, trying to kind of parallel the success of Harry Potter and just really falling flat. And indeed, um, in 2008, in March, March of 2008, uh, Time Warner, Warner, you know, um, dissolves New Line and kind of in, fires over 600 people and incorporates New Line as a kind of minor label within the Warner Brothers studio. And in the press, one of the things they pointed toward was the failure, the the massive failure of of Golden Compass. That that in a in a conglomerate where you have two companies, Warner Brothers and New Line, and both of them are making some films that look really similar to one another, right? Harry Potter and Golden Compass. When you've got one company making Harry Potter and the other one belly flopping with Golden Compass, suddenly the the kind of redheaded stepkid within the uh, 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 well, the, yeah, the the kind of more minor studio within the conglomerate doesn't doesn't seem very necessary, and so they get kind of shut down. And so there is still a new line new line cinema in the world. There are still films that are released with that logo, but from 2008 to the present, it's really been a very minor kind of sub label within the Warner brothers studio. They don't new line as it is, doesn't handle its own distribution, doesn't really handle its own marketing. It develops projects of a certain kind of genre, mostly rated R comedies and uh, horror films. And so it's kind of just a kind of subdivision within Warner Brothers for genre films that Warner Brothers doesn't want to develop on its own. So my last question about the book is really two questions, and you can answer one of them or both. Okay. One of them is, what is the legacy of New Line? And the other is, for scholars of media studies, for media industry studies, how might new line as a case study provide a model or a president for thinking through where our film culture is right now thinking about the tension between you know the auteurs and the superhero movies thinking about streaming thinking about the rise of these well-financed distributors and production companies like a24 and annapurna right um do you see New Line as kind of uh, a model for thinking through these dynamics coming back again, or are you seeing kind of important diversions? I think that ended up being about five questions, but okay. yeah, I guess the short version is, you know, why does New Line matter in your opinion? Right. I think uh, maybe this answers 
some of the questions. Well, I think one, uh, New Line matters because, well, for a variety of reasons, but one of them is like, even as you said, readers of the book will be shocked by the number of films that they recognize that were actually New Line pictures. New Line as an, as an institution is comparatively little known to something like Miramax or certainly to something like Disney. And yet they had, they released a huge number of films that were historically important and culturally impactful. And so when you look at them and you're like, oh, wow, New Line, New Line, New Line. And I just didn't realize where that they'd been doing all this really important stuff and that my understanding of film history will change because I realized that New Line is a connective thread uh, in a number of really kind of crucial moments and with with important films. By that same token, I think they do kind of embody, and it's, it, it, it's a big claim, but I think it's true that they really do embody really important trends within the film industry and movie culture at different moments, right? Like, you can't understand, I mean, it's so, I mean, you could understand 1973 movie culture without Pink Flamingos, but looking at Pink Flamingos tells you something so distinctive about what's defining early and mid-century, mid-70s uh, uh, movie culture. It's like, wow, okay, any world that can accommodate the, su the financial success of Pink Flamingos, that's kind of definitive and really helps me understand what's going on. Similarly, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? Like Shots is totally correct. And I love that, that 1989 is this perfect, like, you know, em emblematized by Batman on the one hand and Sex, Lies, and Videotapes on the other. And that like, similarly, but one could theoretically take Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and say, oh, here's another crazy case where you've got this comic book turned cartoon, turned action figure, turned the most financially successful independently distributed film for many, many years, right? Um, so just franchising and that kind of thing. Um, and even to like, and, and, and Alyssa Perrin's book does great. I mean, it's, it's again, it's like, you don't have to argue it. You can just point and say like, the Hollywood studios gobbled up independent distribution in the 90s. You can point to Miramax and in the case of New Line, you can point to New Line. Um, and, 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 but pointing to New Line, I think shows you some, a different thing than you see with Miramax, where Disney's trying to get kind of more adult, sophisticated viewers with Miramax. Turner's a cable company, right? Looking to move into eclectic movie production, right? And it's like, so he's already got the kind of mentality of narrow casting and he looks at a movie company that's kind of already operating according to a narrow casting mentality of finding niche markets and expanding them as big as possible. So again, I do, I, it's not, it's a big claim, but I think it's an accurate claim that New Line embodies really important moments in film industry and film culture over a 40 year span. By that same token, and I, I don't know, I, I, I do think about this, like where, where are we in 2023? What would have happened if, if Warner Brothers hadn't really shuttered uh, New Line? What if Shea had stayed in, in control? Um, I don't know, uh, uh, because in, in some ways, the current kind of dominance of the studios, but with, I guess with the entry of the retailers and the tech sector, like Amazon, Netflix, and Apple into the conventional movie and television business and then transforming it into a co weird combination of tech and entertainment industries. Um, I don't know where New Line would fit into that. I do still think that if anything, we're more defined by niche content aiming at 
niche audiences defined by very particular demographic characteristics. So that kind of trend that New Line helped I mean, that's, that 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 new that shaped New Line success. Um, I think that's more that's even more prominent today. That on the one hand we've got these kind of attempts at mass audiences, mass global audiences with the Marvel films, but we also have how many kind of small niche programs on Netflix? I'm watching things that you aren't watching. You're watching things that nobody else is watching. And so we do live in a world of increased personalization and particularization and fragmentation of audiences. And I think New Line gets us there, but I don't know, I don't know that I don't know how they could have or would have adapted to the crazy fragmentation that we have today between the micro genres of Netflix and the infinite fragmentation occurring on things like YouTube. I hope that answers some of the questions. No, I think that's great. And, uh, you know, as, as one of your readers, I think you do make a really powerful case for how New Line becomes a way in for looking at these industrial shifts. And um, I think readers will really enjoy it. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, another film that I loved as a kid, and one that you talk about at length that I didn't bring up because I think it invites the reader to go and check it out in depth. Um, one last question, more of a personal question. Uh, you know, what are you currently working on? I mean, obviously, this was a labor of love for quite a long period of time. So as you breathe and send it out into the world, why not ask you <laughs> what's next? Yeah, so uh, I really didn't know what I was going to write another book in my life. But of course, as soon as as soon as I turned in the final draft of this to the press last year, I was like, oh, I'm going to do this other thing. So I'm working on, uh, in some ways, it's a return to video land. And it's a return to my interest in media retailing, which I did a edited collection with Derek Johnson on that. I'm I'm still figuring out this, the scope of it because it, it's got, there, there's two primary interests. One, what is the role and importance of physical media of multiple kinds in a world where most people consume most media via streaming services? And here I mean, not just DVDs and Blu-rays, because actually that's pretty uncommon, but I'm thinking increasingly about vinyl records, CDs, right? And the kind of continuing market for, um, or the kind of subcultural market for VHS tapes and DVDs. So physical media, brick and mortar retail storefronts in a world where that's not the commercial dominance, but still has, in my opinion, cultural importance. Related to that, and I'm, I'm still figuring out how related it is, is um, I'm interested in the concept and the sensibility of cool uh, <laughs> the cool stuff, uh, uh, because like some record shops are really cool. Some comic shops are really cool. And so they're selling a vibe, they're selling a sensibility that can be attached to physical media, can be attached to physical storefront, for, phys, excuse me, brick and store. Oh my gosh. Brick and mortar storefronts. But of course, cool is all over the place too. It's not just in physical media. It's not just, so I'm kind of thinking about like, what's cool in 2023? Why is cool such a durable concept? I mean, it's nearly a century old. Is cool still a, a cool thing in 2023? Um, or is it already residual? So I guess in thinking about these kind of, these durable 
media durability. So durable physical goods, durable physical storefronts, and the durability of coolness as a sensibility, as a cultural value. I might likely come in to start thinking about other cultural sensibilities that are important. I might also kind of the, the physical media part might also be the entire part of the project. But for the moment, it's the combination of coolness, physical media, and brick and mortar storefronts. That sounds uh, sounds very cool. Um, I was I, I found myself by accident um, in an Urban Outfitters, I think, and they had yeah. like a they had like a vinyl section. And yep. I was like, this is not my this is not my normal environs, but it's interesting to think about the the experience that's being curated here, right? In, in addition right. to the fashion. So I, I think there's a lot to work with. And hopefully when you write that book, you'll come back on um, and, and talk about that one. Uh, thank you for your time today, Dan. Uh, the book is Maverick Movies, New Line Cinema and the Transformation of American Film, available now from University of California Press and other online booksellers. This is Pete Kunze, and you've been listening to New Books and Film on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.